Hey, deserving listeners, today I'm going to answer patron emails. This first email is from patron Rachel from Pialop. She writes, I just became a therapist recently, and one challenge that I currently have is that I am too scared to challenge or question my client's behaviors. I introduce different concepts to them. I, I introduce different concepts to them to explain unhealthy thinking patterns. But then when they demonstrate a certain unhelpful thought or behavior, I just listen and I don't use that moment as a teaching moment. I don't connect it back to the concept. I tend to think of myself as their friend, and that prevents me from asking the hard questions because I'm scared of confrontation or debate. My therapist told me that I am not their friend, and she thinks of herself as her client's mother, like a consultant. How do I stop thinking of myself as their friend and more like a consultant? End of email. Well, first off, welcome to the field, Rachel from Pialop. That's great. So it's hard for me to know how to advise you because there's a lot of different possibilities that I could see happening given my experience in supervising people and training people. Uh, there are, just thinking off the top of my head, one, you could be overly timid, as I think you're probably guessing is probably the problem. But also, number two, you could be rushing. And well, I'll get into more of that later. Number three, you might be making assumptions about their quote-unquote unhealthy thinking patterns. And four, um, it's possible that your friend mode might be difficult to alter in you. So maybe you should try to work within that mode and, instead of trying to change that mode. Um, so just getting into more detail here. So let's, just, let's go down the road that you're being too timid, which I think you're intimating. Yeah, as your therapist said, consider yourself to be in a mother role rather than a friend role. And it's hard to do that, especially when you're just starting out. And especially if you're younger, you know, if your clients are older than you or the same age, it might be hard to adopt a, a motherly, paternal, caregiving kind of a role. But really, it's not necessary to, there's a lot of different modes one can be in as a therapist. As you're saying, you're more in like a friend mode, you could be in a mother road mode, you could be, you know, in a father role mode, you know, a, a caring father mode. You could be in a consultant mode. You could be in a teacher mode. There's a lot of different modes that I actually do all the time. Many therapists will sort of mix and match these, these roles as, as, as needed. Um, one of the things that I see a lot of novice therapists, you're a novice therapist, one of the things I see a lot of novice therapists run into is that they don't consider themselves to be real therapists, even though they are. They still think they're imposters. And what I spend a lot of time with my trainees trying to pump them up is to say, hey, stand tall. You are a legitimate professional. You have gone through more education than 99.9% .9 of uh, people on the planet today, let alone people in the past. You are a highly trained, well-supervised you know, uh, machine of wonderfulness. So uh, step into those shoes and, and allow yourself to stand tall. Now, you don't want to be stuck up. You don't want to be narcissistic, but you want to recognize that you're a professional. And I, I find that when people accept that reality, they're much more relaxed and they're much better therapists, really. I found that true about myself as well. Also, um, you might try, uh, you might be trying to be their friend so they will like you. A lot of novice therapists, and by novice, I mean the first 10 years of your career. A lot of novice therapists will try to be a friend to their clients because they're trying to get their clients to like them. And they're terrified of their clients not liking them or firing them or something. It's impossible to just shed that fear, but the faster you can shed it, the better. Uh, I, it took me a long time to really get rid of that fear um, in the for the first number of years of my career. It was mortifying to me to think that a client would fire me. And I remember, I don't know, it's probably like 15 years into my career when I was finally like, you know what? If a client fires me, I feel like I've finally reached a point in my career where I feel like I have enough confidence that I don't really think it would destroy me the way that it would have earlier. So, you know, just try to do your best. Obviously, get, you know, consult, consultation, supervision, support for that. So 
Those are all the little things that I can tell you to do in terms of trying to overcome your timid approach to your, to your clients. The other possibility, number two, is that you're rushing, that you're running into resistance from the clients because you're rushing things. You're, you're saying, hey, you know, you have these unhealthy thinking patterns and, you know, let me explain this concept to you. And then the client is listening to you, you know, like, I don't know, I could imagine you're talking with a parent and the parent is saying things like, I just feel like I'm such a failure as a parent because my kid isn't, isn't doing well in school. And then you're like, well, let's talk about that because a lot of kids aren't doing well in school and you're doing the best that you can. And, you know, this is an unhelpful thinking pattern that you have from your childhood in terms of beating yourself up. Um, and, and you're, you're teaching your, it's a little teaching moment and the client is like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I do beat myself up. And then later on they, you know, maybe even just 30 seconds later, they go back to beating themselves up again. And you're like, Hey, what just happened? I, I want to confront cause I'm, I see them doing it right now, but I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Well, it's possible that, uh, what you're intuiting in the moment is that it's probably not a good idea to actually push them because there's a part of you that realizes that it's, it's rushing them too much. If you're just, you know, people have issues. And the thing I always tell my supervisees is people come to therapy because they have problems. And I know that's a very simple uh, statement that seems quite obvious, but I find that a lot of novice therapists have a hard time really accepting that, that, People come to therapy not for easy, easily fixed problems. If they were easily fixed, they would have fixed them on their own years ago. They're, they're coming to therapy with you know highly entrenched problems that take a long time to change. And so as you're approaching those things and you're not seeing immediate change or you're seeing resistance or you're seeing um, a sort of reticence from your clients uh, – you know, that's to be expected. That's, that's why we have long-term therapy. Um, that's why the internet hasn't changed these people because the, the little advice YouTube videos haven't, haven't really helped. So it's possible that you're, there's a part of you that wants to rush and, and you feel like because you're a novice therapist and you're trying to impress everyone that you want to go real fast. But there's another part of you that's like, you know what? I, I don't think I should really confront this right now because I don't feel like this is, is going to land very well. So that's another possibility. The third possibility is that you're making assumptions about their quote unquote unhealthy thinking patterns. And when you do challenge your clients on these things, things aren't going so well, so you're backing off or you're predicting they're not going to go well. And this is a, another thing that I see in a lot of novice therapists, I, but I see it in experienced therapists too. There's this idea that therapy is mainly about pointing out unhelp, unhealthy thinking patterns. It certainly is at times, for sure. Um, you see certain patterns of the way they think and the way they interpret the world, the way they narrativize their lives that is really harming them and getting in their way. And you certainly you know, can have conversations about that. But it certainly is not the main reason why, we're in, why we do therapy in my book. You know, the core feature of good therapy is listening and entering their world in a true way, not evaluating them in a constant sense. So if you're truly listening and you're truly entering their world, you'll never think things like, that's an, unhelp that's an unhealthy thinking pattern. I want to teach them about this concept. When you're really entering someone's world, the ability for you to affect them increases a hundredfold because they trust you, you're in their world, and so they're not likely to push back on things. Also, by entering their world, a lot of times you don't have to confront people. They'll lead themselves down the road because as the humanistic uh, satirian notion tells us, that is really quite true in my book, when people are given a chance, they will move towards health. When they're given a chance to really feel heard, to really feel understood, to have a secure attachment, to really have time to think in, in the face of non-judgment, they will figure it out themselves. And you don't have to teach them concepts. You don't have to uh, confront them. You don't have to be their mother or a consultant or anything. You're just, you're really in their world and, and they, their natural energy towards health will, will find its way. It might not be as fast as you're hoping, but you know it'll it'll work. 
So it's possible that, you know, when I hear a phrase like unhealthy thinking pattern and you're trying to challenge them on these things, uh, it, it makes me wonder if you're focusing too much on this challenging aspect of therapy, which is a part of therapy. It's not bad therapy. Um, and not enough on the humanistic phenomenological side of therapy and the interpersonal attachment related side of therapy. The fourth possibility is that your friend mode might be difficult for you to alter. So maybe if uh, it's it's who you are and, and that's your style, which is different from maybe other people, but certainly there's a lot of therapists that would uh, you know, be like you, maybe you should try to figure out a way to work within that mode rather than trying to change that. You're, you're beating yourself up and you're saying, Oh, I want, I want to be more of a therapist who challenges and who's more maternal and who's more of a consultant like my therapist. And, but I'm more, I'm more of kind of like a friend, you know, I'm sort of down to earth with these people. And, you know, what am I supposed to do? Well, I don't know. It's possible if I were to be your supervisor and really watch you operate that I would say, you know what? I don't think it's wise for you to try to change this friend mode because it's it's who you are and it really can work well. And not every therapist has to be the same. And so, you know, maybe your style within a threat friend mode is to tentatively throw things out there and say like, hey, uh, you know, I don't know. Here's I, I don't want to challenge you on this. I don't want to disrespect you, but I'm just going to throw this out there as a friend, you know, as a therapist, you know, I'm going to say friend, but, you know, as your friendly therapist. Um, and, uh, you know, what do you think? Maybe your mode is to challenge in a, in a, within the friend mode is what I'm saying. A playful matter, maybe. Um, hard for me to know, but those are the things that I think of when uh, you ask those questions. You also ask, when you explain to someone that you've diagnosed them with generalized anxiety disorder, how do you explain it exactly? Do you tell them not to Google it? Which diagnoses do you tell people not to Google? End of email. Yeah, so uh, generalized anxiety, I would imagine Google to be okay. Um, but, you know, I don't just tell people to Google it. What I would do is I would frame it within their symptoms. So uh, through my assessment, I'm asking them all the questions, and I'm, again, trying to enter their world because anxiety is a very particular thing to everyone. And although there are similarities, everyone experiences it differently. So I'm really entering their world and they're telling me what it feels like in their body, what it feels like emotionally, the thoughts that go through their minds, um, the sensations they're having, you know, all that. And then I'll say, you know what, it's the way that we label this, your experience is generalized anxiety disorder. Let me read the DSM to you. And I just pull, it's right next to me, you know, next to my chair as uh, I'm a you know, bookshelf next to me in my office and I pull it off and I flip through it and I read the symptoms and I say, what do you think? Does this, does this tend, does this describe you? And also um, I might throw out some stats that are available with generalized anxiety. It's within the umbrella of anxiety disorders and something like uh, a third or a quarter of Americans will be diagnosable with a with an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. Don't quote me on that, but it's some high percentage. I'm trying to normalize. And for a lot of people, uh, when they understand that they have a thing that other people have, and they have a thing that has been known about for a long time, it's very relaxing to them and can sometimes be the cure in and of itself. Um, regarding like what I would recommend people Google or or allow people to Google, so to speak. Attachment styles are one of those things that on, on the internet is actually pretty good. Um, there's certainly some silly stuff out there, but for the most part, attachment styles have not been bastardized by people on the, on the internet. I think mostly because uh, the shitty content providers don't really know about attachment styles, and so they haven't uh, picked it apart and, and bastardized it the way that they do with personality disorders. Um, so I don't recommend my clients uh, uh, Google their personality disorders. Um, I, uh, with borderline, particularly narcissistic, particularly um, antisocial, histrionic, passive-aggressive, dependent, um, these kinds of uh, disorders on the Internet are uh, – 99.999% of the information on the internet is not only false, but harmful to people. It's, it's just ridiculous. Narcissist, narcissism in particular recently 
is, now, narcissism as a personality trait or as a concept is not a clinical term. And so I, I'm totally fine with someone on YouTube or a blogger talking about how um, they believe their ex-girlfriend is quote unquote narcissistic. That's fine. That's just a, that's a word like saying someone is stuck up or someone's a jerk face or someone's an asshole or someone's full of themselves. Okay. You know, that's not a clinical term. You can say that, but to say that they're narcissist, that they have narcissistic personality disorder is, you know, uh, you 99.999% of the time on the internet People are using those terms in ways that they really, really do not understand what they're talking about. I mean, it is astounding the level of misunderstanding on the internet about personality disorders. I remember, and I always talk about this, but I remember when I was first exposed to personality disorders and when I was getting my master's degree 25 plus years ago, I remember my instructor, Ned Farley, actually, he's a friend of mine. He was saying that personality disorders are extremely difficult to understand and that in the short time that he had with us, he wasn't really going to be able to do it justice. And I remember thinking, and I remember reading the symptoms in the DSM and thinking like, well, you know, it's not that hard, right? I mean, what's so weird about this? It's, it's not that complicated. It is that complicated. It has taken me, you know, 10 to 20 years to understand half of the, you know, nine plus personality disorders that are in the literature. And I've de dedicated a good portion of my time to understanding it. So anyway, I, I don't recommend people um, uh, Google personality disorders. I might even tell people, look, 99.999% of what's on the internet is is false. Um, or at least at the very, what I could say is it's it's not in line with how I'm using this, this uh, label with you. Google is probably okay with depression, anxiety disorders, OCD, PTSD, uh, maybe substance abuse as well. Uh, the, the internet doesn't tend to bastardize those for the most part. Uh, with substance abuse disorders, though, I would give a caveat that the internet only kind of understands the fact that substance abuse disorders are often, if not always, driven by trauma and suffering. Um, I would also, in addition to personality disorders in terms of not Googling, uh, disorganized attachment is also something that, um, so although I will say it's okay to, to um, Google uh, avoidant attachment, preoccupied attachment, if it's disorganized attachment, I say don't Google it because um, I would say, I don't know, 75% of what's on the internet is either just unhelpful or maybe even harmful. Disorganized attachment is extremely difficult for people to understand. It's actually, you could almost consider it a form of personality disorder or at least the underpinning of a lot of personality disorders. And so uh, disorganized attachment is extremely difficult to understand. When you, when you read the description that's often provided, uh, even clinicians will misunderstand. I've heard professors uh, talk about disorganized attachment in a way that is false. A lot of times people say, well, you know, if you have a mixture of preoccupied and avoidant, then you have disorganized attachment. That is not true. You can have a mixture and not be disorganized. Disorganized means you have no, or you have no organization to your response to trauma, to attachment trauma triggers or attachment injury. Meaning that it's easiest to sort of see in children. It's, it's easiest to um, label in children, which is often what we're doing when we're using disorganized attachment. Uh, for example, when uh, a child was observed doing things like, well, you know, listen to my whole deep time on attachment. I go into it in full detail. You have to be a patron to listen to that. All right, let's uh, go on to another email. All right, this next email is from... Anonymous upper tier patron, she writes, I, wanna, I want to stop feeling guilty over the fact that I don't seem to love or care about other people. I often feel guilty because I don't feel that I love anyone, including the people I should care about. I have only dated two people in my life. In both relationships, my boyfriend was the first person to say, I love you. I felt pressured to say, I love you too because I knew that saying anything else would, would have negative consequences for the relationship. I keep my mouth shut because I know that if I admit this to my current boyfriend, he would feel deeply hurt. 
He would wonder what he did wrong or assume I don't appreciate all the things he does for me. I'm not sure if I love anyone, including my family members. I've asked other people, how do you know if you love someone? The answer is always something along the lines of, you just know, which isn't a helpful answer to me. My current boyfriend says that love is caring about someone else more than you care about yourself. I've never felt that way about anyone. I get the impression that this is something that everyone else experiences, and I am broken because I don't get it. For many years, I felt like my parents would not care if I died. My parents would disown me if I did something they, they deemed unacceptable, such as coming out as gay or calling myself an atheist. Even my boyfriend will eventually leave me because he wants to be a father someday, and I told him at the beginning of our relationship that I would never want children. I am not sure if this is something I will ever figure out. I just don't want to feel guilt or shame over this because there is nothing I can do as far as I know. I've tried to talk about this with my therapist, but she just said that there was a reason why I felt this way, and it didn't necessarily make me a bad person. What are your thoughts? End of email. Yeah, um, you absolutely should not be shaming yourself for being who you are. There's nothing wrong with who you are. It's just how you feel. You don't have any control over it. And I'm guessing if your boyfriend likes you, then he must feel some affection from you. You must meet some of his needs, if, if not all of his needs, for affection and attachment and quote-unquote love. So, you know, yeah, do not, do not feel bad about yourself. So um, I would continue to explore this with your therapist, and it's, it's much more complicated than what I would be able to assess or even talk about in this format. But there are some general hypotheses that I would explore. Number one, it's possible that you were born with or somehow developed a weaker sense of love for others, meaning that uh, your temperament, your disposition, your brain, your neurons, that you were born in such a way that you just have less of a brain that's oriented in a way that will manifest in the experience that other people are calling love. And, and you're, you're looking at them and you're like, I don't have that experience. It, it's similar to if, for example, you don't talk in your sleep. You know, some people talk in their sleep, some people don't. And so you'd be like, wow, you know, what is it like to talk in your sleep? That's bizarre, you know, or to, I don't know, uh, well, I'm a man and I don't have a uterus and so I can't have children. I will never know what it's like to have a child. And so when I, you know, interface or learn about childbirth from people I've talked to, I'm, I can't, I could just never know what that's like. It's just because I was born with a body that just can't give birth. It's possible that you were born with a body that just can't feel love. Um, there are uh, hypotheses or ways we frame this sometimes that we uh, will call it psychopathy or antisocial related to that. And, but it's not necessarily true. Um, you know, I don't want to say that you're a psychopath, that you're antisocial. You're not saying anything of the sort. But there are certain personality traits that can lead to what we would call psychopathy or um, you know, psychopathic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder, including uh, a, an inability to feel love or compassion for other people. Again, I'm not diagnosing you with that. I'm just saying, I'm just relate. you know. Okay, let's rewind here. So... There are many different theories as to why people develop psychopathy, um, one of which has to do with a temperament that has a lowered capacity for compassion for others, which we might call related to love. Other people uh, point to deficiencies in the fear center. Anyway, so I hope that makes sense. So it's, so it's possible that um, you're, just, you're just born different and, and that's just how you are. Some people are born extroverted. Some people are born introverted. Some people are born um, with a lot of energy and some people are born with very low energy. Some people like to talk a lot. Some people, you know, you'll see that in kids. When you observe little children, you see that kids come out of the womb with differences in their temperament. And so, you know, maybe it's just a temperamental thing. I could see how it would be very distressful to you to have that if it was temp if it was sort of ingrained in your biology. 
Um, you know, maybe it's a attenuated oxytocin response. Who knows? Um, I could see how that would be very distressing because you're just like, everyone else seems to have this experience. Now, I will say that there are many other people like you. Um, they're not very vocal about their experience because they're ashamed like you are because our society tends to shame unfairly people like you um, or think that you're a monster or that you're going to kill someone or something. It's, it's not true at all. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it isn't a very common thing, but you know, there's enough people like you. I've, I've heard it before there. There's a lot of, uh, there's a fair amount of research and literature on this. It's hard to know. The other thing here, the overall thing here is how do we describe love? You know, how do any of us know that our experience of quote unquote love is the same as others? We, we have no idea. We will never know the answer to that question. Is my experience of love the same as yours? So maybe you are experiencing love, but you, you just are misinterpreting the way other people are, are talking about, it, which leads me to another hypothesis is that, um, you know, there's a lot of books and poems and songs. You know, you hear other people say, you know, well, how, how do you know? You're asking, you know, how do you know when you're in love? And other people say, well, you know, you just know it. Well, what kind of an answer is that? <laughs> and then your boyfriend says, it's when you put other people's lives in front of your own. Well, that's one definition of love, but it's not the definition of love. The other thing is, is love is um, societal in a lot of ways. There's, there's, a pretty, there's pretty strong evidence that love is a social construction that is different in different societies, that we build it linguistically, and that um, we experience it through that construction. And that in other times in history and in other regions of the world, their experience of love is just completely different. So, you know, there's a lot of squishiness to the word love. But, you know, here, here are some other words that I might throw out that you might feel that are actually the, what other people will call love, but you're not calling love for whatever reason. So another uh, word is preference for someone. Like, for example, I love my wife. Um, but another way to put it is I have preference for her over others. I would rather spend time with her than other people. I would rather tell her about my day than other people. I would rather come home to her than other people. When I, when I leave town and I'm not with her anymore, I want to be with her. You know, I, I, I'm not dying to be with her because we've been together for a long time, but I like to see her again and I, I miss her. So there's a preference for her that I have. It's a preference over, over you know, uh, for her over other people. I'm guessing that you have preference for your boyfriend than other people. Otherwise you wouldn't have a boyfriend in the first place. Well, that's another word of love, you know, maybe. Another one is life partner. Maybe you, when you consider having, or a, or a, at least a temporary partner, right? You have a partner for a while. The fact that you have a boyfriend, the fact that you choose to have that kind of lifestyle means that there's some kind of life you want to live or some kind of, uh, I don't know, experience you want to have ongoing. And for some people, they will call that love. Uh, that's another way to describe love. Another one is connection. That's another word that you might be able to resonate with instead of love being connected to someone, your lives are connected or your, you know, your brains are connected in intellectual ways or something. Another thing is that you enjoy each other's company or that you have a common sense of humor or, you know what, <laughs> this is true for me is that with my wife, I don't get tired of her the way I get tired of other people. <laughs> So, I mean, at the sort of a base level of the definition of love for my wife is that I don't get tired of her as fast as I get tired of other people. I tend to get tired of other people very quickly <laughs> if I spend a lot of time with them. But with my wife, I never get tired of her or I, she gets on my nerves very, very slowly <laughs> to the point that I probably don't even notice relative to other people in particular. And so that I remember early on in my relationship with her going like, huh, that must be I'm in love with her. <laughs> uh, you know, there's other things as well, but but that might be for you. Maybe your definition of love is, you know what? I, I think I'm in love with my boyfriend because I don't get tired of him the way I get tired of other people. Now, 
all of that is true. You know, it's not the romantic way that people describe. It's not the way we put in Hallmark cars or Hallmark cards or poems or love songs. But it is it, it's it's the reality of love. And you know, maybe you're hearing all these words about you, you just know it when you see it, and it sweeps you off your feet, and it's a magical feeling, and it's da 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 da. And, you know, the reality is for most people, at least on a daily basis, that's not people's experience of love. You know, the experience of love is is preference, uh, especially past the first couple years. You know, in the first couple years, there might be the butterflies, there might be the obsession, there might be the compulsion, there might be the, the lust, there might be the gigglies and the googly eyes. Uh, but after a certain amount of years, for most people, it, it morphs into a different form of love. And maybe you're experiencing that form of love, and um, uh, but, you, but you just don't like the word love. Maybe you just – maybe you like the word preference or something. Um, the other hypothesis is that your defenses ha- prevent you from feeling the love that's in your heart. So in this hypothesis, you actually do feel love deep down for others, but – Due to reasons in your history growing up, you learned that you had to defend yourself against your own love for other people. A scenario that's very common is that you say, you know, you had love feelings for your family early in life. And this could be as early as a year old. And as you express that, something bad happened to you. Either you were rejected or abused or given a, a very odd response, you know, unattuned response from people around you. And your love feelings became associated with very bad things. And so you learned, you know what, I have to cut myself off from my heart. I have to sever, for the most part, my neuronal connection to the love center of my soul. And by doing that, I protect myself from the pain of being rejected or abused or misattenuated with or something. And now as an adult, you just can't access that anymore. I've certainly seen this before with love, but with all sorts of emotions like anger or sadness or joy or happiness or, you know, all the emotions we can cut ourselves off from and including love. And so it's possible that deep down you do have love and it is glowing. There's a, there's a lot of love that's happening inside of you, but because of your defenses that were help that were helpful to you growing up, you've learned to cut yourself off from that. Um, so that's another possibility. And again, I'm glad you're in therapy and I would can continue to explore it. But, uh, but again, I would, uh, resign yourself at least partially to the possibility that you might not ever really feel like you have the same experience of love as the people around you, or that um, you'll always have a hard time kind of swallowing the word love. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, I, I get that. The other thing is, is if someone truly loves you, uh, and you explain to that person, look, I don't know if I can love others, but I can have affection for you. I can miss you. I can, I can like you. I can have a good sense of humor with you. But there's something about the word love that just doesn't f- sit well with me. And I don't know if it's me or my defenses or, or I just don't see it the same way. I don't know what's going on. So could we say a different word? You know, could I, when you say you love me, could I say to you, um, I like you a lot, (laughs) or I like you as much as I possibly could like anybody? (laughs) I mean, I I don't know, but I, I would like to think that if someone truly did love you and have affection for you, and they truly understood where you were coming from, then you could be who you are and not feel like you have to hide that. So, again, talk with your therapist about that. Okay, so let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break for commercials. If you're a patron, you're not going to hear any commercials because patrons don't hear commercials. But if you're not a patron, you're going to hear a couple commercials. All right, we're back from the break. This email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, 
I'm writing in to get something off of my chest, and I hope you understand. I'm 20 years old, and this summer I had a psychotic break. I thought a lot of I, I, I thought a lot of delusional things, such as thinking that I was Houdini or that Kate Bush was coming to take me away from the hospital in a helicopter. I also had a delusion that you were my fiance. I thought that you were dead and you were taking over the doctor's minds to try to talk to me. I tried to get my parents and the hospital to call you. I thought you were talking to me telepathically and sending me messages through movies and books. Thankfully, I came out of the psychosis and was diagnosed with bipolar 1. After I came out of the psychosis, I entered a deep depression and felt deep, deep shame over my delusions. At one point, I was a huge fan of the podcast and enjoyed it. But after my episode, I couldn't listen anymore for a while because it was too painful. I'm so embarrassed of my delusions, and I thought for sure if you knew what happened, you'd think I was just some crazy person because that's how I feel. I've been going back and forth with whether to tell you this for a while, and while I wrote this, I couldn't help but cry. I took a break from life, and I'm in a much better place now. I hope this doesn't freak you out too much. End of email. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you told me. There's nothing to be ashamed of at all, anonymous patron. It's essentially like having a dream about somebody. <laughs> I had a dream about a coworker last night. You know, why did I have that dream? I don't know. I guess that's what my brain decided to do. It's nothing to be ashamed of, right? In fact, I have dreams about podcasters that I listen to. Um, there's a podcast I listen to called TBTL here in Seattle, and uh, it's the hosts are Luke and Andrew, and I th- I'm pretty sure I've had a dream about them at some point. And I suspect that uh, y- listeners out there, I've been in your dreams at times. It- it's just, you know, you have dreams about the things that you experience during the day sometimes, you know, whether it's the barista or, um, you know, a teacher or a podcaster or, you know, I've had dreams about famous people like Sting or Holland Oates or Paul McCartney <laughs> and this kind of thing. Um, and that's essentially what psychosis is. I mean, it's, it's a very different experience, but it's the brain just sort of randomly coming up with associations and making you believe that they're really happening. So, you know, it, there's no sense to the weird associations that our brain will make. And for whatever reason, your brain decided to make those associations with me. Um, and to be clear, I'm not freaked out at all. I know, I know psychosis in the brain well enough to know that there's nothing to be afraid of and it's nothing strange and it's, it's totally, um, I don't know, just par for the course. Um, like I said, uh, given the amount of people who listen to this podcast, given that, you know, a percentage of those people have had psychotic episodes since listening to this podcast, you know, there's probably a percentage of people who are going to involve me in their um, delusions in the same way that you involved Kate Bush, probably because you like Kate Bush. Um, who else did you involve? Uh, Houdini, you know, Houdini was involved in your uh, delusions probably because I don't know, there's some association that you have with Houdini. Okay. So I'm not freaked out at all. Having said all that, I'm terribly sorry you went through that. Psychosis is awful to have a episode like that and then look back and think like, wait, I can't trust my brain. Now, you know, you're getting treatment, you're on medication, you're, you're doing a lot better, which is fantastic. And, you know, being optimistic, it's possible you'll never have another uh, you know, delusional episode again, uh, particularly if you stay on your meds. A lot of people with bipolar one like to play with their meds sometimes. So make sure that you get advice and monitor yourself very closely if you ever do uh, change your meds with your prescriber. Uh, but, you know, um, having said all that, I, you know, psychosis is, is just awful. I've been with a lot of people as they go through that, both personally and professionally. And it is a rough time. It's just a rough, rough time. And I'm really, really sorry you went through that. And thanks for reaching out to me. And I I hope that um, your shame is lifted, at least somewhat, if not entirely. There's nothing to be ashamed of at all. Um, You know, tonight, let's say I have a dream about you. 
should I be ashamed that my brain randomly decided to call you up in my uh, associations and my storytelling of my brain? No, I shouldn't be afraid of that at all. It's just my brain. I don't know what the hell <laughs> my brain does what it does. And yours did what it did. And it's, it's not. A shame. And the other, I, well, part of it probably has to do with how our society associates what you did with like, you're going to come stalk me or kill me or something. And I know better than that. Um, those are stories you see in movies or, you know, the sensationalized stories you'll, you'll hear in the news or something where they just cherry pick one out of a billion different examples to, to point that out. Um, you know, people have delusions, uh, frequently it's a very common enough thing. Um, and, uh, the, the chance of someone, uh, being violent or criminal in that state is actually very, very low. And so, um, I, I'm not, so, you know, I'm not scared at all anyway. And congratulations for emailing. <laughs> it took a lot of courage. Um, and I really hope that you're doing well now. All right. This next email is from an anonymous patron. He writes, my partner and I have been together for almost a year and it has been a life changing relationship for both of us as it is the first serious relationship either of us have ever had. We love each other very much and have discussed how it's like we have enabled each other to see the world in color for the first time. Unfortunately, this has also resulted in her constantly worrying about harm coming to either of us. She even regularly has nightmares about this. To clarify, she does not engage in any obsessive or compulsive behaviors to prevent harm coming to us, she simply suffers from the anxiety. I wish I could help her to find peace and acceptance over how unlikely this is. We both have insecure attachments, though I would say it applies to her much more than me. I am in my own therapy, and we are working on hopefully getting her into therapy soon. End of email. Yeah, therapy is the answer. I'm glad you're seeking that. I'm glad you're in therapy. There's not much you can do from your position. So getting her into therapy is the best thing you can do. Uh, take it from me. It's hard to, as a therapist myself, it's hard to change the people close to you. <laughs> you know, I, I am frequently, you know, I'll just tell you a story. Just last weekend, I was talking with a friend and he was talking about his troubles and I kind of slipped into therapist mode and I was just like, you know what? I have the answer. And I just started kind of spouting the, maybe the way I would as a therapist. And it didn't go over very well. Let's just put it that way. Uh, it's just not our role. People don't typically want uh, us um, or our, you know, we, we don't typically want our peers or our spouses or friends or family members to therapize us. So um, there's not much you can do to change what she's going through. The best thing you can do is listen and not judge her. You know, when you have, you're, you're talking about how you say, I wish I could help her find peace and acceptance over how unlikely this is. So I'm guessing you're at the very least having thoughts, if not just telling her, look, it's not likely that either one of us are going to come to harm in the way that you're really worried about. You know, that's great, but that if that doesn't work, then the uh, issue is probably much deep, much more deeply entrenched than a simple perspective giving would change. So, um, you know, continuing to provide quote unquote perspective uh, around her distorted thought process, if it's not helping, then I would stop that and I would just listen and not judge. That might be all that she needs. Maybe it, the the feelings come up in her. Maybe you know. Let's say for the rest of your life together, she has this upwelling of anxiety, and she, she wants to, to voice it. She voices it. You hear her, and then it goes away. You know, and it subsides, and then it comes back, and it goes. You know, a lot of times that's what we're. That's the best case scenario we're we're talking about. Also, another thing you can do is build a secure relationship with her. You both are going to benefit from that. And through that security, she will feel less anxiety in all likelihood. So uh, let me know how that goes. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, most people that I know regularly take drugs such as weed, cocaine, MDMA, ketamine, hallucinogenic mushrooms, etc. And I have the impression that deep down, everybody knows that it's harming them in one way or the other, myself included. 
but nobody seems to want to quit completely. I know that taking such drugs most likely messes with my emotional well-being, and if, if I wanted a state of emotional balance, I should not take these drugs. What strikes me is that I am aware of it, and I can think it through rationally, but it does not convince me enough to want to quit altogether. I feel like the negative, which would be feeling a bit off the days after use, still do not outweigh the momentary pleasure that I get from taking drugs. I wonder if there are any negative consequences from it, which I am not aware of, like neurological damage. FYI, I take drugs approximately once per month, and I live a stable life with otherwise healthy with an otherwise healthy lifestyle. Do you think there is a balanced approach to taking drugs at all, or are they all inherently bad? I imagine that a truly fulfilled and happy person would not need to use drugs to experience pleasure. What's your view on this? End of email. Yeah, um, you know, drugs are not inherently bad, not at all. Uh, we have a lot of culture around this that tells us that, but that's just, I mean, it, you know, it's, a, it's an opinion. It's a, it's a lifestyle. Like, we would point to it and say, well, you know, it does have consequences. And in terms of, like, the neurological damage and that kind of thing, yeah, it's possible. Uh, there's limited research on it. There does seem to be some research that uh, indicates that you can harm your brain in certain ways by uh, repeated or even just one-time use. But, you know, there's a lot of things like this, like skydiving is dangerous, right? You know, every time you skydive, let's say you have a friend that goes skydiving, you know, once a month. And she's like, well, you know, one of these days my chute isn't going to open and maybe my reserve chute isn't going to go open and I'm going to die or something or I'm going to break a leg because I'm going to hit the ground too hard or something like that. Well, you wouldn't say to that person, well, you should stop skydiving. You know, we all understand the person has understood the risk and they're like, yeah, there's a risk here, but I enjoy skydiving so much that I'm willing to accept that risk into my life. But when it comes to drugs, we're such a, you know, puritanical culture that uh, we're like, oh, you know, you need to stop using those drugs. So there, there's, there's some dangerousness in life that is acceptable culturally and some dangerousness for happiness that is unacceptable. And so uh, while I'm not going to say that the drugs aren't going to harm you because they might, but you seem to acknowledge that, you know, you're willing to take that, uh, that um, risk for the benefits, which is that you really enjoy using some of these drugs um, every now and then. So, um, you know, you're asking – so the, the essential question you're asking is what's the optimal balance well, it's different for everyone, and it's really hard to tease out because, like I said, there's a lot of culture around this. In, in some cultural pockets, the mainstream culture, all drugs are bad. You, you're never going to hear you know, mainstream people say, like, you know, I use cocaine uh, every weekend, and I find that it's, it's enhancing my life, and it's totally great. You're not going to see a lot of mainstream people say that. So there's going to be a lot of, oh, you're a drug addict, and oh, you're in denial, or oh, you know, the shit's going to hit the fan one day. And the thing is, is like, well, maybe, but maybe not. Um, as a therapist who have actually heard people's lives and they tell me actually what happens in their lives, I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of people who use drugs uh, to some degree, uh, you know, cocaine, MDMA, hallucinogenic mushrooms, ketamine, weed, especially weed. Um, and they have decided that although there are some negative consequences, uh, they're willing to incur that for uh, the benefits that they get out of it. Alcohol is another example. Uh, caffeine is another example. Most of us understand that caffeine has some negative consequences, and yet a lot of people still use it. Why? Because it serves a benefit. It lifts the mood. It gives you some energy. Alcohol, it you know, loosens you up and makes it so that you can relax or you can you know, have a good time at the party or something. There's, there's reasons why we use these substances. It's not like they aren't without their benefits. And for some reason in our society, we have a really hard time accepting that. And we just have this thought of just like, you know, especially when we're talking about drugs in the clinical setting, like with a therapist on a podcast, somehow it's just like, oh, you know, drugs have to be all bad. Um, you know, it, it, it's a matter of, of decision. You just have to make the, the choice for yourself. But like I said, it's hard to evaluate because 
There's culture that uh, swings too much to the it's bad camp, but there's also a culture that swings too much to the it's good camp. You know, if you're in a druggy culture, there's going to be a lot of propaganda around like drugs are fine and there's there are no consequences. Plus, when you become dependent on drug use and you can become dependent on several drugs all at once, like you you might have the quality of someone who just needs some mind-altering substance uh, periodically. It doesn't matter which one it is. And so you're essentially dependent on some mind alteration of some kind. That's certainly something that we see clinically. Um, Sometimes we call it a polysubstance addiction. So you are uh, so so there's a trick that your brain can play on you of just like, oh, this is good. Um, And anytime there's data that supports the idea that you're taking too many drugs, then you ignore it or you consider it an anomaly or something while only focusing on the good things. So it's hard to evaluate that on your own. Sometimes you have to have conversations with people. The other thing here is that. Uh, there are a lot of benefits to, to using substances that we might not re- necessarily recognize because we don't pay attention. A lot of reasons, a lot of the uh, reasons why people use substances is because it regulates our emotions. We have tension, we have anxiety, we have cortisol, we have stress, we have depression, we have you know fear, and when we take the substance, it just takes it away. You know, opioids, that's why people get hooked on heroin and stuff, because it just takes all that away. Uh, just a, a little bit of effort, a pill, a, a needle in the arm, and boom, everything just washes away and you're fine. Alcohol can have that effect. Weed can have that effect. Cocaine can certainly have that effect. All those substances can, can just take away our stress in a way that nothing else can. No amount of therapy in the short term anyway. No amount of talking with your friends is going to relieve your physiology in a way that a substance will. You know, that's why we take these drugs because it it just helps us. And so when we understand that, sometimes it can help us to create a different sort of a balance. We can understand, okay, well, you know, maybe there's some other ways that I can long-term help me with my emotional regulation. You know, maybe I need to heal from certain things that I have suffered from in my life that are just kind of always in the background, like this background static that's always in my in my body that I should, you know, I'm not going to completely stop drugs. I'm going to keep that as a helpful thing and as a fun thing on the side. But I'm also going to dedicate myself to healing over the next five to 10 years. And then maybe you don't need to use substances as much or at all anymore. There's also a lot of social benefits to using substances. A lot of people really bond around uh, using substances together. Uh, alcohol is, is no different than that. There's, there's a camaraderie that's, that's instantly created like, hey, let's, let's drop acid this weekend. Let's, you know, let's take ecstasy and go to a party together. Uh, whether you use the substance or not, um, you know, you could probably give people placebo and, and they would still feel more bonded together because you're, you're doing a together experience. And again, if you recognize that, you might be like, okay, well, let's use MDMA to bond sometimes. But other times, you know, maybe there's another way I can bond that doesn't have to involve substances. You know, I don't need to be dependent on substances to do that. Now, the fact that you're using substances once a month leads me to believe that you do have a balance, that you do have other ways of regulating your emotions, that you do have other ways of connecting with other people. The other thing uh, that makes it hard to evaluate, especially if you're using drugs, you know, in a periodic nature like you are, is the withdrawal effects can be sometimes hard to detect. So, you know, uh, to truly be able to contract, you know, right now you're like, well, what would my life be like without drugs? Would it be better or worse? Well, if you only stop using drugs for a month at a time, you might not actually know what your life and your emotions and your soul and your, you know, your thought processes would be like without drugs, uh, because you need to be uh, without substances for a long time, you know, maybe even 12 months before you really get, a, especially if you started using when you were young, it, it's it, only then do you really know like, okay, this is what I'm like truly sober and you know with a sober expectation i'm not i'm not white knuckling it to try to not use you know this is what life is like to be sober and then you would have to have a good enough memory 
for what it was like during your drug times to in contrast it to which is better, which is worse. The problem is with, with your lifestyle is you have this spike in enjoyment once a month, and then you might have this, this kind of recovery period where your body is recovering from that. And it, believe me, it takes so many, even though you don't feel it uh, very consciously, substances can have effects on the body, negative consequences on the body for, for many, many days afterwards. So it's possible that it takes your body a while to recover and you're, uh, you, you, so anyway, it's just something to think about. It, it's something that I've walked through with a lot of clients and, uh, cause they will bring these questions to me as well. And one of the biggest questions we have to ask ourselves is like, what propaganda is in our head affecting our ability to evaluate this question as to, you know, what's the balance here? Now, I will tell you that for a lot of people, the answer is abstaining that uh, it's hard for them to have balance with substances, and thus they decide that, well, it, I just can't use it all. And what I see people do is they'll, they'll have this question like, ah, I think, you know, I think I need to cut back. They try to cut back. It doesn't really work. And they always kind of slip back to this other, uh, you know, sort of pattern of use that is excessive in, in their mind and, and are having negative effects. In Seattle, you know, marijuana is legal and has been for a while now. And even before it was legal, there was plenty of people using it. And I, I would have a lot of conversations about this with people. And I would find that one, every single person I talked to that had trouble with weed ongoing, uh, meaning they used usually every day, every single one of them was suffering in some deep, profound way. And that's probably why, at least that was our conceptualization, they were using the substance to begin with. Yeah, the substance was fun. It, you know, altered the brain, it, you know, made music sound better and food taste better. But really what it did is it, for a temporary period of time, took away this background suffering um, that has to do with one's childhood, that it was always present in their life. And they were, um, they just felt so much better when they could sort of numb out on that for a few hours in the evening. And now, again, that isn't to say that they, sh that they should stop using the substance, but what it does do for us in therapy is it does help us to focus on the suffering which hopefully reduces the need to use the substance. But anyway, a lot of the people I would find that uh, they would say, you know what, I, I can't use it all because if I let a little bit of it into my life, it takes over and uh, problems occur. Uh, but certainly that's not true for everyone. You know, all of us know people in our lives who say drink once a month or twice a month or they smoke pot twice a month or something. And although there are potential risks that are um, created by that use, they're willing to accept that risk based on their decision making and um, and they're okay with it. Each one of us just has to make that choice. There's no, there's no right amount of substances one should be using. It's just something that we just have to evaluate for ourselves. Um, let's see. So you also uh, wrote, I imagine that a truly fulfilled and happy person would not need to use drugs to experience pleasure. So uh, this is a complicated uh, sentence, and again, it's born out of the propaganda around this, and, and in my field, I, I will say. There's this notion that, like, if you're truly happy and fulfilled, then you wouldn't have any need for substances. Now, yeah, that could be true for some people, but for some people, they're, say, so fulfilled and so happy they like using substances to enhance that happiness or to alter that happiness or to have a different version of happiness or something. You know, substances, we, we look at substances in our culture as some kind of crutch or some kind of like negative thing, like there's something wrong with you that you depend on substances to be happy. And the fact is, is like that's all just wrapped up in Victorian attitudes and sort of religious attitudes. Uh, philosophically, it doesn't really make any sense. Uh, you know, cultures since the beginning of civilization have been using substances to alter the mind. It's something really quite human or at least quite modern in terms of, you know, the past 50,000 years. And, you know, it's just it's it, why do we need to put this negative judgment on it? 
it can be negative for sure. I have worked with people professionally and personally who have tremendous trouble with drugs and alcohol, and it just ruins their lives. In fact, it can kill people. So, you know, I'm not going to say that it's all good, but it's complicated. You know, it, it, there are uh, risks and there's, there's ideas and there's, there's, it can pull you in a direction because it is habit. Most, if not all substances are habit forming. And so we're always kind of pushing back on that. Um, so the, the solution is whole, a holistic uh, evaluation of how happy am I? What are the substances really doing to me? Can I really figure out objectively what's happening? Um, yes, there is an objective risk to taking these drugs. Are, is that acceptable to me based on the benefits? Is there another way to get those benefits? How can I start to explore the, you know, over the next 10 years, how can I kind of shift and sort of play around with this? How can I change the propaganda that's in my head around substances? You know, all those things, it's very complicated. Uh, so that's what I'll say about that. And that's a good place to end the episode. Uh, thanks for joining me, everyone. Uh, let me know what you think. You know, comment below. Uh, let me know what you think of all the. I've talked about today. I've talked about confronting clients. I've talked about DSM Google. I've talked about um, not being able to feel love. You know, what? How, how do you feel love? What's what does love mean to you? Did, did my definition or my various different words of love resonate with you at all? Um, psychosis, shame, death, anxiety. Um, and and uh, right now we're talking about drugs. So let me know what you think. I'm always curious. Uh, I always learn from you guys. And if you're not a patron, please become a patron. That's how we know that you like what we're doing. That encourages me to keep going. You are you patrons are the wind beneath my wings. And please, all y'all, take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>